And Father, tonight, thank you again for the book of Acts. Thank you for continued opportunity to see you grow your church. Give us, uh, Father, a sense of that early church as we study it from these uh, many years later. The excitement and the uh, dedication that came with those early believers, but also, Father, the sense of urgency and and if it be your will, Father, even a, perhaps a sense of sacrifice so that we might understand uh, the depths of, of uh, the grace that you've shown us. And we pray the study would have that effect as we learn. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 12 of Acts is the next phase of persecution among the early church. It will also be the last chapter of the first half of the book of Acts. Now, if you're counting, it's not halfway through the book by chapter count, but it's halfway through by the way Luke organizes the text. And it's almost halfway according to chapter. Earlier in the book, you noticed in the, in the way the church initially began, it was principally directed toward Jews in the city of Jerusalem. That's who the evangelists of the early church directed their efforts toward. That's who the apostles were directed toward. And naturally, that resulted in persecution coming back from the Jewish authorities. Who, who did not like what they saw taking place among the Jewish brethren. Well, now in the last chapter, we saw that second or third phase, I guess, the third phase of the church's growth, where now we had moved past Jew, past Samaritan, and we're finally seeing the church evangelize Gentiles. Well, naturally then, that resulted in a new kind of persecution. Now the persecution that will follow the church is coming from a Gentile origin, not to suggest that the Jewish origin has gone away, But it is just a new one, and in some respects a more powerful one, because now, of course, when we talk Gentiles, we're talking about Rome and the Roman authorities, who have a great deal more uh, power even than the Jews do over the church. So you have a new antagonist rising up from among the Jewish authorities. His name is Herod Agrippa I. And the chart in front of you will help put him in his proper context, this chart, if you don't If you want to come back to it later, this chart's available online as well as the audio and and so on from the study, so you can get it later if you need to. Uh, We'll come back to this chart momentarily and look more closely at him and his uh, family, his illustrious family line. Let's look first, though, at the events of chapter 12 as it opens up and see where he begins to play a role in the early church. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. Notice first in verse 1 of chapter 12 when the timing of these events occur. Luke says it was at about this time. And of course, it's about the time of the events that ended chapter 11. That's what he's referring to. So if you go back a page in your Bible and you look at the end of chapter 11, you notice that uh, that that chapter culminates with Saul and Barnabas sent by the elders, or two rather, to the elders of Jerusalem because they're carrying a financial gift from Antioch that's intended to help the church in the city. And, of course, this is because of the Great Famine. So that's the other thing that's happening during these events. There's a Great Famine around the world taking place at this point in time. Interestingly, then, Saul and Barnabas would have been in town during some of these events. We'll come back to talk about them in a a little while toward the end of the night. Herod, we're told, lays hands on some of the church. The phrase in Greek, it really means he attacked them or he targeted them. He, He set out to target them. And unlike the general persecution that happened at the very early stages uh, back when Stephen was martyred and then the Jewish authorities began to persecute the church and then that, of course, drove the church outward from the city, in that experience, the brethren, the disciples, the general basic everyday ordinary Christian was the one being driven out of the city. But the leadership, if you remember back when we looked at this, they stayed behind. All the apostles remained in the city. This is uh, back when they expected that they were supposed to evangelize Jews only. So staying in Jerusalem was, was all important to the apostles. And it would appear they were largely left alone by the Jewish authorities. They, they went after the disciples, not after the leaders. 
But now, if you look at the way this persecution has taken place, Herod goes after the leaders in typical Roman form. They cut the head off the snake, or at least they try. Now, a little background on Herod is probably going to be helpful at this point, and this is where your handout comes in, at least uh, as a reference point. I'm not going to address the handout uh, directly point for point, but just to orient you here, it's uh, obviously a family tree on one side. I find this useful because... In traditional style, the kings would take the names of their fathers so that Herod was the family name, not an individual's first name in the way we think of it today, in much the way that I guess the uh, king and queen of England have had the name Windsor as associated with their name going back uh, a ways, and they just start using first names to distinguish themselves. In this case, the first name is really the second name. So Agrippa would be this person's name, Herod Agrippa I, And you see him down on the lower side, left side of the chart. So above him is his ancestry, tracing back to Herod the Great. And then, of course, on from there, you see his own family line. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, of course, was was a descendant of Edomites, Esau's descendants, in other words. And he was placed, Herod the Great was placed as king over Judea by the Roman Senate. This is in keeping with the way Rome did things. When they conquered a land, they would put their own leadership over the people. And because Israel was traditionally ruled by a king, a Jewish king, the Romans decided they would allow them to have a king. But of course, they would pick who they wanted in that role. And they didn't care if the person was truly Jewish or not. That was the last thing that they mattered that mattered to them. So long as that person could be acceptable to the populace and keep the, the country in check, keep the people happy, more or less, uh, prevent rioting and prevent insurrection. And Herod the Great, by sheer force and intimidation, was able to accomplish that. So he ruled for quite a long period of time, and his rule was famous. He was a great architect or great builder in his time, and he obviously built the uh, extensions onto the temple and made it the, the grand building that it was in Jesus' day and so on. So Herod the Great it has a, uh, a historic role in Judea and in Palestine. Herod's grandson, Agrippa I, his grandson Agrippa I, was born in 11 B.C. His father, Aristobulus, Herod Aristobulus, was murdered by Herod the Great, by his own father, because Herod the Great was always suspicious that someone was trying to take his throne from him, and at the moment that he began to believe somebody was plotting against him, he would just put him to death, doesn't matter if it's his son or, or anyone else for that matter, so... Herod Aristobulus was killed by his father, and Herod the Great sent Agrippa, who was at the time four years old, to Rome for an education. So he killed the dad, sent the grandson back to Rome. Now, while Agrippa was in Rome, he became close friends with the grandnephew of the emperor of the time, which was Tiberius. Well, that grandnephew was a boy named Gaius, who later became... Caligula, the emperor of Rome in A.D. 37. And at the time that Caligula ascended to that role as emperor of Rome, he then went back to his friend, his boyhood friend Agrippa, and named him the Tetrarch of the territory that today we call the Golan Heights, southern Syria, Golan Heights area. Later, he came back and gave Agrippa the title King of the Jews, which you didn't get that title except that that Rome awarded it to you in that day. And along with the title, he got the lands of the Galilee and Perea. Then later, Caligula was succeeded by Claudius, who gave uh, Agrippa even more territory in his reign, finally giving him Judah and Samaria. So by the time all that was over, Agrippa had Judah, Samaria, Galilee, Perea, and Golan Heights. He had basically all of Palestine, all of modern-day Israel. And as king of Israel, he ruled for four more years after that point when his territory was greatest. So he only had that full uh, land mass of, of territory to rule for about four years until A.D. 44, when he died at the age of 55. His son, Agrippa II, appears later in the story of Acts when we look at Paul. So in Paul's experience, we'll hear later in the book of Acts about him dealing with King Herod, but it will be this son of the one who you see now persecuting the church in the earlier days. And this chart, as you see, will give you some of that uh, connection between the various 
names, various Herods of that family tree. If you go back and read the Gospels, and particularly when you hear about the stories of John the Baptist being beheaded and so on, some of these other people come into play when you're talking about that experience. It's a quite uh, an uh, ignominious family of, of despots and adulterers and so on. On the back side, you see just something I thought was helpful. Looking across the New Testament, in terms of time, you get a little chronology there on the left of the books of the Bible, roughly speaking, when they were written in the New Testament. And what, who was in power when that was being written? And some of the events that are marked in history at that time. And hopefully that's a good tool for you to stick in the back of your Bible. So back to the text. With that background, let's look at what Herod's doing. Herod moves first against James and puts him to death. Now, this isn't James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the letter of James. This is James, the brother of John, who was one of the twelve apostles. That's different than the James who wrote the letter. The phrase, with a sword, he was put to death with a sword, it probably refers to the legal method of execution that they would have applied in that day, beheading by a sword. What it tells us more than anything is that it was a legal proceeding that resulted in his death, a trial, a conviction, an execution sentence. It was something done in a very official capacity. Now, up until now, there had been martyrs in the church. We have already read stories about them. We know this has already been going on. Paul himself was responsible for some of them. But till this point, none of the leaders had suffered martyrdom. Now, for the first time, we have one of the 12 apostles of Christ whose life now has come to an end, and he's died on the basis of his faith. James won't be the last, of course. In fact, tradition holds that all of the apostles but John died a violent death in martyrdom. But interestingly, James and John are the two apostles who both came to Jesus while he was still alive on earth and made a bold request of him, which is recorded in Mark chapter 10. Beginning in verse 36, listen to the request. Mark 10:36, And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, well, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. So Jesus asked the two apostles, you sure you can follow in my footsteps? You willing to do what I'm going to do? Of course, they didn't understand. I have to believe they didn't fully appreciate what he was talking to them about. And what he was talking to them about, of course, was are they willing to die a martyr's death as he did himself on the cross? Whether it's on the cross or in some other form, is he willing to follow in that sense? Is he willing to go that far in their following, in their discipleship? Both of them say, yes, we agree. I find it interesting. Let's assume for the moment that they don't understand what they're agreeing to. Nonetheless, it's a binding agreement. Similar to the way the Jews stood at the base of the mountain and they were asked by Moses, do you agree to do everything that's in the law? We will. Moses comes back a second time. I've got to read this to you again. Are you sure you want to do everything in this? Yes, we will do it all. It's binding to you and to your descendants, Moses said. And so when they said they could, Jesus said, then they will. James dies here. John, we know, dies in captivity in the island of Patmos at the end. James is the first to experience martyrdom, to sit on the left of Jesus. John is the last one who lives his life out to the longest, but in captivity, and he is allowed to sit on the right of Jesus. James on the left, John on the right, every other apostle dies in between. It would seem as though that pairing was intentionally connected to their request. Herod and his family of kings, as I mentioned earlier, they were not Jews. That enters into the issue now of what's going on. Why has Herod decided at this moment to begin persecuting and more than that, martyring the leaders of the church? Well, they were Semites. The Edomites uh, were Semites, but they were not Jews because they descended from Esau, not Jacob. They were made kings of Israel, as I said, by the Roman decree, not by Jewish law. And therefore, their acceptance by the people was tenuous. Certainly among the most orthodox, they would have been, he would not have been seen as the legitimate king. By those in the, in the Jewish culture who were, le, let's say, less orthodox, less concerned with the rules of law, the Sadducees, for example, they would have been more willing to compromise and accept him, perhaps, so long as he was, quote, a good king to them. And 
Herod, and this is apparent in other places and in other writings, Josephus' writings particularly, he carried with him throughout his whole reign a kind of insecurity, and an insecurity complex even, among the Jewish people, based on the fact that he wanted desperately for them to see him as Jewish and to accept him. He had a maternal grandmother who was a Maccabean and therefore was Jewish. And so that certainly wouldn't have qualified him to be Jew, but in his own mind, he felt he was close enough to the part that he longed to be loved by his subjects and received as truly a Jew. There's a famous scene that Josephus writes about in which he is uh, on a day of a festival reading from the law in front of the gathering of Israel in some large gathering. And he reads in the law at some point that the king cannot, that only those who are Jewish can be kings over Israel. And he begins to weep at the moment that he reads this in the law because presumably he's convicted by the fact that he doesn't meet the requirement. And the response from the crowd in the moment is to yell back to him, do not worry, King Herod, you are our brother, you are our brother. So there was a relationship in that country in which they understood and recognized he had some insecurity about who he was and they, would, they wanted to support him, perhaps out of pity if nothing else, and were willing to accept him. There was this very interesting dynamic between him and the people in his day. So with that background, understand that background, you have now amongst the people a rising movement claiming that the man who is king on the throne of Israel is not their Lord and King, but that Jesus Christ was Lord and King and is Lord and King, and that there is no earthly ruler greater than this heavenly ruler, and so on. And it is drawing away both Jew and Gentile in this new movement. That's a tremendous threat to a man who's already insecure over his reign among people who he is not even confident he belongs among. And the first and and best way for anyone to deal with a threat like that is to cut the head off. So he goes after the leadership. So Herod kills James, and then, interestingly, he notices it pleases the Jews. What a great reinforcement for a man who's seeking to be appreciated and received by, his, by those people. And, of course, we know it, it, it is pleasing to the Jews in the sense that it pleased the unbelieving element, and particularly the Pharisaical and Sadducee element within uh, Judaism. And they could come to him in his court and represent their own views as if they were the views of the people. Every time they heard something they liked, they'd say, Herod, this is great for us, for our people, and vice versa. If they didn't like it, they could tell him the opposite. So he's a man who's, who's got one ear to the ground on everything he does and wants to know the reaction. People, in this case, received it well, he's told, and so that emboldens him. So he finds Peter, drags him off to prison, and by any reasonable standard, the expectation for Peter and for anyone else watching would have been it won't be long before Peter's dead as well. In fact, it is the week of unleavened bread as it turns out, which is, in this case, clear evidence that God was at work already in the way these events unfolded and in the circumstances around them. Because had it not been for the eight-day festival of the week of unleavened bread, which leads directly into the Passover day, if it had not been for that period of time, Herod would have probably already have killed Peter in the same way that he did James. But because that period of time involves a lot of Jewish ceremony and ritual and rules that would not allow him to do what he wants to do with Peter... He is, as the text says, holding Peter until the day of Passover. And you remember the pattern of activity or the uh, tradition, rather, the tradition that accompanied Passover in this day. This is not a biblical tradition. It wasn't by the law that they did this. But really, for unknown reasons, this tradition materialized in the Jewish people under the rule of the Romans. And the tradition was when they had the day of Passover come, there would be one prisoner set free. Uh, at the will of the people, Jesus and Barabbas, where Barabbas was allowed to go free and Jesus was not. Well, that's the moment that Herod is leading up to with full expectation that the Jewish people will call for Peter to be killed because he was infamous in the city by this point in time and he would certainly have been an easy one to target. So that's his plan. Wait until the day of Passover, bring him out, have the Jewish people condemn him, have him put to death on the cross or any other way they might decide to kill him. So for the third time now, Peter's in prison, if you're counting. This is his third time, waiting for execution. And Herod takes no chances with this guy. Peter must have been a pretty intimidating, scary-looking guy, I guess, because he's assigned four squads of soldiers to guard him. A squad is four soldiers in its own right. Four times four is 16 soldiers. And they would have been basically in six-hour shifts. And as the story will go on here in a minute, you'll see how they're... uh, Two are chained to Peter, two are guarding the door, and those four get rotated every six hours 
keeping track of Peter. This kind of additional attention was very rare, very unusual. You would not have seen this normally. Only for the most dangerous characters would you have expected this kind of of, uh, protection. Why does Herod go to so much effort for Peter? Remember the last time he was in prison? He was freed miraculously, remember? I I think that story must still have uh, circulated around and Herod wasn't going to take any chances. So, in the course of this delay, of course, it gives a chance for the church to pray for Peter's release. They, they see a window of opportunity and they pray. And then what follows in the text, and I'm going to read a large section here. Do you think it, the story works better if you don't break it up? So from chapter 12, verse 6, all the way to verse 17, we're going to read this account. And what follows in this account is so detailed and so, uh, I think, so comical at times that it immediately strikes you as both authentic and genuinely believable because the details are, are so true to life. And I think we can even probably see ourselves here a little bit reacting in the way some of these characters are said to react uh, because when you see the supernatural work of God, it, it takes you by surprise no matter what you're expecting. So here's chapter 12, verse 6. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. Behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up, quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gates that lead into the city, which opened for them by themselves. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked on the door at the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it's an angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. It's a funny story, isn't it? The reaction that you see here is so true to life. I love that about Scripture. But it's such a nice reinforcement when the way people react to the story is exactly the way you perceive you would have reacted. And it makes it all that much more real and approachable. Before we look at the account in detail, I want you to take a note here of Luke's careful contrast of Peter and James, because he does this, I think, intentionally. Both, we know, were leaders of the church in that day, not necessarily with equal roles or equal authority, but they both had a prominent role. When Herod began to persecute the church, of course, both men would have become targets. James is taken first, and he almost immediately meets his end. There's no sense here in the text that he had to wait very long. And not in that day, it wouldn't have expected that he would have waited very long. And it probably happened so fast, in fact, that the church may not have even known how to react. It was the first one to first one to be persecuted, the first leader to be killed. All of that would have just caught them, I think, a bit off guard. And so the whole thing would have been a shock to the system of the church. And now you have Peter taken. But now in the way the events of this story play out, it's obvious. I mean, you couldn't get more obvious that God has clearly prevented Herod from killing Peter, right? God involved himself through the angel and stopped it so that it wouldn't happen. And passages like this, when you look at it together like this, between the story of James and now the story of Peter, passages like this go a long way to correcting any simplistic notion we may harbor for how God is predisposed to conduct himself or conduct our lives in answer to prayer one way or the other. Because there were no doubt some prayers said for James as well. No doubt James had hoped for a miracle release, just like Peter, and none came. And similarly, no doubt Peter himself didn't assume he was any more worthy for release than his brother James had been, than his brother in the faith had been. 
And so he was probably sitting in the jail expecting this was his time. God took James. He'll take me. But he didn't. The question then arises, why? And the answer is simple. We all die sooner or later. How is it that one of us who dies on a given day says anything about God's predisposition toward us when we die on a different day? Is any day better than another in that respect? Is sooner really worse than later when we go to heaven? The rationale, the whole line of thought that begins to weigh good and bad in relationship to times of death or order of death or age of the person when they die has missed the point of the discussion of death and of God's sovereignty entirely and brought it down to its lowest common denominator, that is, what matters to us on earth, and failed to see it from its highest perspective, which is, can a death be useful to God? Yes. Then God, use my life and my death to the greatest possible good. And if the answer comes back, well, that requires you die young, only the good die young. (laughs) Or so I'm told. I think of it like God having a certain measure of material that he can use in the work of his hands on earth in producing glory for himself through the saints. And our lives constitute the mass, the content of that, of that material. And he's just using it as he wants to when he needs to. And if our perspective is that God's pleasure in us is reflected in either how long we live or in how nicely we die, we have completely distorted the biblical view of what life and death means to God. In light of the fact that his son stands as an ever-present example for us of what the most pleasing kind of death is for God. So if Jesus' death represents the most pleasing death of any on earth for God, for his sake of his glory, then what does that say about what we should be seeking? At least in the general sense. Not necessarily we seek after God to crucify us, but in the general sense of what we should want to see happen in our life, We have to see it from the point of view of how God sees it, from God's glory. So for God's glory, James went to death first and in a very specific way. And for equal reasons, in in terms of God's glory, Peter was saved. That's all it comes down to. So here you had the prayers that were given on James's behalf were not answered in the way they were that they may have been proposed to God. But his will was done to the glory of God and in an opposite sense for Peter. So God's decisions aren't necessarily a reflection of our goodness or of his displeasure. They are simply a reflection of his will. And in this case, he determined James's work is finished. And on the other hand, he decided, I'm not going to leave the, the church at Jerusalem without a leader in this fragile time. So he spares Peter for now. But, you know, Peter meets his end soon enough. And when he does die, his death is far worse, I would argue, than what James suffers through. Far worse. If you had to have a choice between the two methods of death, I guarantee you, you would not choose the way Peter died. So as it turns out, James's fate is more merciful than Peter's when you consider how their lives play out. So now, who would you rather be on this week in which both are taken by, by Herod? You see, perspective changes everything, doesn't it? If we're all going to die sooner or later, who had the better outcome in some sense? I don't think Peter would have traded places with James. I think each man did as he was called to do and understood that. But nonetheless, it reminds us you have to be careful of what you wish for and you have to keep a perspective as far out into eternity as you can. In John's Gospel, when Jesus is talking to the apostles and he tells Peter that in his old age he would have his hands stretched out predicting the death that he would have on the cross, You know, even before these moments, Jesus was talking about how the life that each of these men live would end. And he wasn't going to die in a jail, he was going to die on the cross. Now, to the humorous side of the account for a moment. Notice Peter's disposition as we come to the beginning of the scene. He's sleeping. This is after seven days or more in prison because it's near the end, it says, the night before he was going to be taken out and uh, put on trial, so to speak, put on display. So if you were to take for granted from Peter's point of view that he has assumed the worst, he's in the jail all this week, he assumes tomorrow's the day he dies, this is the night of the convicted killer's last stand in prison, so to speak, well... You would have thought he must have expected to die the next morning. He's sound asleep. Content with whatever outcome is apparently about to come. Perhaps he did remember what Jesus said, though, in John, when he said, when you're older, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and so on. On the other hand, Peter has a habit of sleeping when he should be praying. Remember the garden? So maybe this is just his style. 
Anyway, the squad of guards here assigned to Peter, they included the two chained to him, as we already said, the two who are guarding the door cell. And then in that moment, they're all asleep. The angel appears in the room and lights it up and commands Peter to walk out. And of course, the chains had to fall off his hands because he's chained one hand to each of the guards. and They're all lying on the ground. He's not going to be able to stand up if the chains don't fall off. So in the moment that he says stand up, the chains are gone. He stands up. And then this is part of what I found humorous, too, is Peter's so stunned by all of this. And apparently from what the text says, he doesn't even think it's true anyway. He just thinks he's having a dream. It's like when you dream so accurately, it feels real. So he thinks he's in one of those moments. And the angel has to say, why don't you get dressed? He has to walk him through the basics of getting your clothes on, get your shoes on. We're walking. Yeah, that's it. Come on. Because you would have thought he probably would have walked out naked if he hadn't been told to do those things or whatever little he had on at the moment. He escorts him out. The main gate just opens like, a, like an automatic door. And all the while, the guards are sleeping through the whole event or they have been prevented from seeing it in some sense. So they're oblivious to all that's happening. Would it be interesting to see God work this way? He's not incapable of doing it at any point, And I don't know that he necessarily has stopped altogether. It's certainly not common. Uh, hasn't happened to me. But uh, nonetheless, isn't it interesting the, the extent to which God is willing to go to free somebody under these circumstances and yet do it this way? Because remember, he could do it anyway. Peter, Peter could have, you know, genie-like blinked and then shown up outside the, the, the walls all by himself. There was something about the way God chose to do this through the leading of an angel that was intentionally directed at helping Peter see what's happening, who's doing it, how it's going to take place. And you saw toward the end of the account where Peter has that moment of coming to awareness and says, oh, now I see that God is doing this. Do you remember the, 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 the statement he makes in, in uh, sort of surprise to himself? Verse 14, uh, I mean, in, um, sorry, a little above that, verse 11, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people who were expecting, expecting my death, in other words. In other words, it's something that shows Peter the effect God, the intent God had and the effort God was willing to go to to rescue him and to do what needed to be done. I can tell you that whatever happened in Peter's life after this moment was different from his point of view than would have been before this moment. For whatever he was as a man of faith, forever, however much he knew God or thought he did, he was a different man after this moment. Inevitably, he had to be. And I think that was the point in the way God did this. Once he's free, of course, the angel is, is gone. That reminds us a little bit of Lot. If you remember, Lot is escorted out the city, but he's not taken any further than necessary, and then the angels are gone, and it's up to Lot to walk the rest of the way. Peter, at that moment, has the awareness that it's not really a dream. I've had dreams that I thought were so real that when you wake up, you're, I thought that was real, but I can't imagine having a dream that I think is actually a dream, only to wake up and find out, no, I'm, it's really happening. That's kind of the opposite. That would have been a very weird sensation. Once he realized uh, that he's been released, he comes to his senses. He also realizes in that same moment, his escape is not over. That's what's also, I think, very similar to the story of Lot. Remember, if Lot had stayed where he was after the angels left, he still would have died. They were to leave that area because it was still under the threat. All the angels did was get him outside the walls of the city, away from temptation. Peter's been released under similar circumstances, set outside the walls of the city, I mean, of, of, of the prison, but still very much in danger because as soon as his escape is discovered, you can bet the whole city is going to be alerted and looking for him. There won't be anywhere he can hide in this city. No one that knows him won't be also a suspect. So he has no hope to remain in the city. So his first thought is, I've got to let somebody know I've escaped so that they are aware of my situation. And then he himself has to get out of the city. So he looks for the closest home with Christians who are gathered and he finds the home of John Mark. Now, John is the Jewish name. Mark is the Greek name. That's how they did things in that day. Uh, John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. And later in the book of Acts, we'll see he accompanies both Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. When uh, Paul and Barnabas later split up, John Mark goes with Barnabas and Silas goes with Paul. Later, he actually joins up with Paul again and travels with both Paul and then also with Peter. He is the John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He is also Peter's interpreter when Peter eventually reaches Rome and needs an interpreter. As you may know, just as we say that Luke's Gospel was really Paul's Gospel, as Luke was Paul's traveling partner, and Luke got most of what he knew through Paul to, that wrote for, for the sake of his own Gospel, since Luke was not accompanying the Lord himself uh, before crucifixion. 
Similarly, Mark's gospel, John Mark, was really Peter's account transcribed as he walked with Peter. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but among the apostles, really what you have is Matthew, Peter, Paul, and John, loosely speaking. So this is the John Mark we're talking about. By the way, church tradition says John Mark founded the church in Alexandria, Egypt, before his death. And so this is the home Peter makes his way to, probably because he knew there'd be Christians there. Probably this was a common gathering place for the church. So this is where we get to the really funny part of the story, of course. And again, so true to life, it just feels real. You have Rhoda, the servant, coming to the door because someone's knocking on the outer door. We're talking about a door that would have been to a gated outer courtyard of the home. So at the very extreme outside of the, of the home itself, that's where Peter is. She's so excited. She sees who Peter is. She's so excited. She leaves him there. That's the part of the story everyone chuckles at, but it's also the most realistic part of the story. You know people who do this, right? They get so excited, they're more interested in the sharing of the news than they are of actually doing the thing they came to do in the first place, which is let the person in. It's kind of a classic sitcom moment. And the rest of the brethren, when they hear the story, are so equally surprised by it, and they don't believe it at all, that they start arguing with her in there instead of just walking out to see if what she's saying is true. They only had to go maybe 20 feet to verify the whole story but they'd rather argue about it inside the house than go outside as if to walk out would make them look foolish when in fact they find out that she was wrong. They'd rather be defending of their pride by staying in the home. It's just a very interesting moment. Now, they keep saying it's an angel. Why do they keep suggesting it's an angel? What we would say today is it's a hallucination. Your mind's playing tricks on you. You just heard something. We would try to dismiss it as if she made a mistake. But they run to a different explanation, one that I don't think we would ever run to. They say, oh, you saw something all right, but you didn't see Peter. You saw an angel. That almost seems more bizarre, doesn't it? How does that make the situation more explainable? Well, in this time and and among Jews in that day, and you know this, by the way, if you've studied the book of Hebrews, because the first chapter of the book of Hebrews is a defense for why Jesus is greater than angels. And you might wonder why you'd even have to make that kind of a defense. Well, Among Jews in this time, angels were often venerated. They were held in high regard. And there was a traditional view among Jews that everyone had a guardian angel. Some certainly still hold to a view like that, whether whether biblical or otherwise. They still like the thought. Among the tradition the Jews had, the view was your guardian angel was your twin. Guardian angels looked like the person they were guarding over. So this reflects the way the Jews would have perceived an explanation under these circumstances. Remember, they believe God's at work in the church. They've seen supernatural work of God in the early church, so they're not beyond accepting the reality of the supernatural. But they find the supernatural's presence in the form of the angel an easier thing to hold and grasp on in this moment than the fact that Peter himself may have been let out of a prison guarded by 16 soldiers. And I think in some respects that makes sense. Because of the two possibilities... The angel walking around the city seemed a lot more plausible than Peter. Just looking beyond this moment then, the fact that there are so many gathered here ready to receive him is probably a reflection on the fact that now the church being large in the city had gone to the house church phase of growth. They no longer met in one place anymore. They now met collectively in different places around the city. Each of these major or or these uh, different meeting places became a regular destination. And so as Peter was looking to go somewhere, he knew this was a house that often had church members in it. John Mark's mother is the one who owned this home, we're told. She must have been wealthy to hold a house, have a house big enough to hold a decent-sized group. But this also tells us something about the way the church itself had moved now. When people talk about having an Acts-like church, Acts 2 is often the place we run to. Everyone sold everything and all moved in together and kumbaya, it's the, it's the Acts 2 church. That was the church only in its very earliest phase. Very soon after that, still, Peter's still in the city at this point. It's moved to the house church movement. We've already moved to the point where churches needed buildings and they had to separate out into subgroups. And presumably these subgroups did not spend a whole lot of time gathered together anymore, probably in part because persecution made it difficult for the church to be seen as one large body any longer. So at this very early stage, we have already the beginnings of what we classically today see as church congregations meeting in different buildings around the city. Not all that far removed from the very beginnings of the church. And Peter, as a leader, probably would have made his way around the city and visited various churches, but he himself probably had one congregation he favored and spent most of his time in. 
Now, he had no intention of staying here. And this is where we, we see Peter fade. If he had stayed here or at any other place in the city, he would have likely been recaptured and he was endangering whoever he was hanging out with. So he had no hope to remain in the city. And in particular, um, he says, I want you to tell the other leaders, and James in particular, I want you to tell them I've been freed. And you notice how he starts the sentence. Shh, don't, you know, quiet, quiet down, quiet down. I'm here, but tell them I'm out. And then he disappears. James, the one he's talking about here, is the one that is the half-brother of Jesus. This James now becomes the prominent leader of the church in, uh, after uh, Peter's departure from the city. With that, we're told Peter leaves Jerusalem. Now, Scripture does not give us a clear understanding of what Peter does after this point. It's probably the case, this is my own guess here, but it's probably the case that Luke kept this information out of the account to protect those who probably were involved in Peter's escape because many of them might still have been alive when Luke wrote this account. So if he were to reveal a lot about how he got out of the city, he might have been endangering some people. Early church fathers later wrote that after Peter left the city, he left Judea altogether. He went into the diaspora and started moving around the churches of the diaspora in Asia Minor. Paul talks about Peter being an itinerant minister at this stage of his life when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. We know that Peter spends some time in Corinth, according to what Paul writes in Galatians 2, and later in Antioch. And in Asia Minor, according to Peter's own first letter. At one point, we know Peter has to come back to Jerusalem because he participates in the Council of Jerusalem, which is written later in chapter 15 of the book of Acts. That happens after Herod Agrippa is dead. So he finds his way back to the city only because he knows that Agrippa is no longer looking for him. But at this point, this ends the account of Peter. Uh, We don't hear much more about him except for that short mention in chapter 15. Now, in verses 18 and onward, we see Herod's response. Herod Agrippa I discovers the escape, and of course he has a response. Verse 18, Now, when the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have come of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. So Luke, in his typical understatement, says there was no small disturbance among the soldiers. Can you imagine? And the reason there would have been no small disturbance among the soldiers is they knew what was coming next, which was if they were not able to find Peter, they would be held accountable for his escape. Because under the circumstances, the only assumption someone like Herod could make is there was a conspiracy. There was something complicit about it. These soldiers had to be in on it. How else could you let a man like that out? Chained to two of you and guarded by two more. There's no other explanation. So he executes them for their apparent failure. The word examine There, when it says Herod examined, it literally means like a trial, like a judicial examination, probably implies a court-martial. After Passover, he goes back to his headquarters in Caesarea, which would have been his normal procedure. Verse 20, now when he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission taking along with him John, who was also called Mark. What Luke is doing here, of course, is he's wrapping up the life of Herod as he moves out of the story of Peter. And he mentions there's a political dispute that's broken out here between Herod and his subjects in the Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. They fell under Herod's authority. They were one of his part of his territory. But his subjects were in a quarrel with their king. We don't know what the quarrel was about. But we know where it led to and where it led to was Herod cutting off their food supply because they bought their food. They saw their produce coming out of the valley, the the fertile valley of the Galilee, which Herod here has shut down. He is not allowing any food from the Galilee to make its way to Tyre and Sidon. And so that's what's referred to there in verse 20 when he says their country was fed by the king's country. So he's using this as a tactic, obviously, to get them to bend to his will and stop rising up against him or stop. Uh, as retribution, basically, for, for their willingness to fight him 
on some matter. Now, in response, what they do, and this is not as clearly elaborated in the text, in part because I think Luke expected the reader of his day to understand the circumstances. But we know from other texts, Josephus, for example, that in response to what he did in cutting off the food, leaders of these two cities, these are city-states, the way these cities were, were set up in their day, they were like little nations unto themselves. So Tyre and Sidon have their own authorities, their own governors, their own kings, so to speak, but they're always under the authority of Herod. They each sent ambassadors or emissaries to Herod once they had their food supply cut off and they bribed or somehow they won over his chambermate, Blastus, the guy that's responsible for his bedroom, for managing his bedroom. And they have, by winning him over, what Luke is implying is that this guy Blastus starts lobbying on their behalf to the king. And of course, they needed someone like Blastus who was close enough to the king that he could get the king's ear from time to time. So Blastus is there trying to negotiate something and why he's willing to do it, it's, it's unclear, but bribes are a good bet. That's set up this moment now in which Herod is going to address these people from Tyre and Sidon, these ambassadors, these ones who have come, presumably in order to make peace, to come to some resolution. But he sets up this very pompous event. And in this event, we see the course, in the course of this event, he dies, this supernatural death. So it happens during this address. He, uh, Josephus, in the way he describes this moment when he dies, when he's giving this address to the representatives of these cities, he calls it an oration, but we use that term today differently than it was intended in its original day. In the Greek, it means a long, scolding kind of speech. Not a pleasant speech, not a, a comfortable situation at all. It's, it's, a, it's a talking to, but a long one. So an oration has that sense to it. And it's directed at Tyre and Sidon. He's dressed, as Josephus describes him, and as the Bible describes him as well, in his finest apparel. And he's seated in his throne. And the response of the people, as he speaks to them, is said to be that this is not the voice of a man, this is the voice of a God. Now, remember who these people are. These people are the people of Tyre and Sidon. These are not uh, loving Jewish subjects of the king. These are Gentile Phoenicians who couldn't care less about Herod as far as uh, king goes and would just assume see him die, frankly. So what is their motivation to sit there and say, not the voice of a man, that's the voice of a God. It's not likely sincere. It's a kind of flattery. It's a kind of obligatory response. It's intended to placate him in this elaborate scene in which at the end of the story, they hope to have their food supply back for all the he all that he's put them through. No matter what it was intended to do or what the whole scene was about, it's clear the effect it had on, on Herod. The effect it had on him was to inflame his pride and vanity. Uh, this is how Josephus describes it. He says, clad in a garment woven completely of silver so that its texture was indeed wondrous. When he entered the theater at daybreak, there the silver, illuminated by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously radiant and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. Straight away, his followers raised their voices from various directions, addressing him as God. Interesting that Josephus' own account mirrors perfectly, of course, other than detailed, the fact that he gives more detail, it's a perfect reflection of what Scripture says. And as he was speaking, God strikes him down, strikes him down for this pride in accepting the praises of the people as God. Josephus says it this way, the king was struck with a deadly malady after being hailed divine. He was smitten one day, died five days later, and the rotting of his flesh produced worms. Whatever intestinal disorder killed this guy, it was something bad enough that toward the end it was visible. And may not have been all that uncommon. I don't mean to suggest it couldn't be supernatural. That's certainly the case is God did it. But it doesn't require that God did something out of the ordinary. He could have just brought some common malady against the man in the day. But... Either way, not the way I'd want to die. The point is, God would not have Herod reign a day later than he intended. And his death, as we know, opened the door for Peter to return. And to mark another division in his book, Luke inherits, uh, or inserts, I guess, his characteristic line here. Uh, the word of the Lord continues to grow and be multiplied. Remember we said that's one of the hallmark phrases he'll throw out from time to time in the book. Not crediting the men, not crediting the apostles, but crediting the word of God or the spirit. But when he chooses to throw that line back into the text, it's a kind of, of marker to reflect back on and know that we're about to do something new in the story. So here's his next marker. The church is not what matters, but
but the Word of God, the instrument of God's work. And then, curiously, just as the chapter began, it ends. Paul and Barnabas on the road again, this time leaving Jerusalem. And this is really, I think, mostly about artistic narration than about spiritual significance necessarily. But Luke is teaching through a storyline, a narrative that he is connecting dots through. And how do you move from the story in chapter 11 of the Gentiles receiving the gospel and and Peter's testimony about it to the death of James and the death of Peter and the death of Herod? Well, he uses really as an artistic device the fact that Paul and, and Barnabas walked to Jerusalem. He lets the story follow these gentlemen narratively into the city. They're there in the city while all these events take place. And then how is he going to move the story now back to a discussion of Paul and Barnabas? He moves it by the way they themselves leave the city at the end. So it's, it's a very interesting vehicle. It shows you the effort that, that Luke is going to here to construct a story and keep it in a flow from one event to the next. Their departure now brings attention back to Saul. And that's where we go next in the story. In chapter 13, part two of Acts begins. We're looking now at the life of Saul, soon to be Paul. In fact, very soon here, we'll start using this name, Paul, the Greek name, to reflect the fact that he's now fully engaged in his work as the Gentile apostle. And we'll watch him and Barnabas and John Mark and several other characters now as they move through the second half of the story. So that's where we go in a week. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the testimony that uh, you have given us through both the life of James and, and the life of Peter. Father, it was evident you had Peter where he had to be for a while, and then it was also evident you had... T- a need to move him. And it was also, Father, true that there was a time in which each man, each man will face the end of his life because his work on earth is done. And Father, I pray as I consider the story and the events we've studied, I pray that you would give us all a heart to know that we're not worried about how long we're here, but what we do with the time we have. That we care not about the details of how we'll die, but only how much it may glorify you. And you would uh, give us that heart to think in in, in that way so that we would be so directed and focused on our work that we'd never let those earthly matters distract us, much less uh, cause us to weaken or fail at our work. So we ask, Father, for the courage to continue forward no matter what their circumstances. We ask, Father, for a a focus that is mindful of the eternal and not uh, of things here and now. And uh, trusting, Father, that if we keep that mindset, you will guide us to the proper end. Thank you for a study that reminds us of those things this evening. And, Father, I pray you bring us back, as always, next week, perhaps with others, but always with your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.